I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Lorraine Ferguson, trainer and coach and author of The Unapologetic Saleswoman, Breaking the Barriers, Beating the Odds. Many women are deterred from pursuing sales careers out of a fear that they will be judged by standards set by men. They give up because they are convinced that they won't be perceived as assertive or as goal-driven. Lorraine Ferguson shows how women can gain trust and respect by being both assertive and collaborative. By asking the right questions, they build credibility and will be seen as strong and professional. Illustrated with case studies drawn from her own career and her experiences training other saleswomen, this book teaches advanced techniques that women can apply in everyday sales situations. Welcome to the show, Lorraine. Nice to have you here. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. The Unapologetic Saleswomen, I guess, obviously, just as the title implies, um, women somehow are don't see themselves as successful when they are as saleswomen, that there's an issue here, that women have an issue, that they are fearful, that they are maybe fearful of unlocking their own potential when they get in a room with men and they're trying to uh, sell something, as you say, uh, to the C-level person in the room, male person in the room, and that we are apologetic. So, uh, but your book, says we don't have to be, and you actually give us a, I don't know, sort of a, a program or a guidance in how we can overcome our fears and be successful as saleswomen. Yes, that's absolutely the case. You know, when I've worked with a number of, of saleswomen over the years and my role as trainer and coach and, and uh, also as manager of saleswomen, and I, I feel that women really make terrific salespeople, but we have some mindsets that we need to erase. And we also, if we're going to be successful, need to have a strong selling system in place. And it's got to be a selling system that is different than what we see as the traditional sales approach, which is how traditionally men would be selling. Let's talk about the traditional approach that we as women should not be doing and why it doesn't work for us. Okay, I think that's a great question. When you think about the traditional way in which people sell, and primarily it has been men over the years that have been the primary sellers, uh, I always start by saying what words come to mind when you hear the word salesperson, and usually that's a good descriptor of what that traditional sales system is, which is pressure, trying to convince, a lot of features and benefits, and a lot of the salesperson doing all of the talking. And um, when I think about women, that really is not very appealing to us. And when I think about my own career in selling, I sold that way for a number of years. And then I, I came across this selling system, which is called Sandler. And that was kind of the awakening for me that, ah, we don't have to sell that way. In fact, if we can utilize what comes to us naturally, which is our ability to nurture, to listen, to really look at the bigger picture and help somebody to discover what the real issues are and how important it is to address those, then then we're in a much better position to be effective when it comes to selling. So that's what I mean. We need to throw away the, the old sort of mentality of what 
selling is and that we have to behave in a way that is not a good fit for us and replace it with a much more collaborative, conversational, no-pressure approach. So it's amazing, it seems to me, that if we've been using this approach that doesn't really work for us as women, that we would be selling anything or we wouldn't be selling too much, I guess. Uh, What about, in terms of when I talk about what we are trying to sell, does this approach, as you describe it, work in any kind of a a venue, whether you're trying to sell a, a, a car or you're selling jewelry or you're selling insurance, it, it, does this, is this for all, yeah. Yeah, the the answer to that is <clears throat> that when when we think about selling, every sales conversation really has a couple of different pieces, regardless of what you're selling. The first is I have to build some sort of rapport and trust with that person. I need to qualify that person and the situation as something that I can address, and then I need to have some manner in which I present a solution. So what oftentimes differs is in a retail uh, sort of selling situation, it's a much shorter conversation, and uh, so I, it's less complex. Uh, but the, 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 the underlying components of selling remain the same. So uh, in, in a more complex sales environment, I'm going to have a lot more interactions. I'm going to be spending a lot more time really qualifying because there's more that I might need to really be uncovering in terms of what issues exist. I might have to spend more time in terms of budget or investment expectations. And certainly my presentation may involve multiple decision makers. Let's talk about sales in terms of a house because I don't know where that stands. That sounds, that's, that's, I would describe that as a complex situation. People are going to spend a lot of money buying a home and it's mm-hmm. maybe a lifetime purchase. So when you're talking about sales and you're talking about women, uh, in sales in real estate, uh, talk to us, maybe specifically give us an, an example in that kind of a situation. Okay. I think the key the, the key behind selling, and I'm thinking about real estate, is oftentimes a seller will look at their role as being one in which they need to present features and benefits and they need to uh, really try to convince the person that this might be the right fit. And we all know, particularly when it comes to a home, that's something that's very personal. So when I think about selling, uh, the Sandler way, it really is erasing that whole connotation of, you know, I've got to convince somebody or I'm going to really demonstrate that this is the best home for them. Put all that aside. And, and what I like to say to women is think about you're having a conversation with your best friend and your best friend has a problem. And that best friend needs someone who can listen to them, who can ask the right questions, who can help them to really discover what's important to them. And in other words, let the person discover for themselves and sell themselves on what is important and what is a good fit. And when it comes to buying a house, you know, if we can slow down a little bit up front and really have a conversation with that prospective buyer and say, you know, let's let, talk to me about what's most important to you. What would your biggest fears be in terms of a home or a community or, you know, in making a purchase of this type? So we, we pretty much have the palette of 
paint, if you will, all the different things that we might know about real estate. And we have the paintbrush, and what we're doing is through our questioning and our sincere interest in, in getting to what's most important, is we're, we're handing our buyer the paintbrush every time we ask a question. We're, we're looking to see, are they painting? What are they painting? What is on that portrait that is defining what a good fit looks like? So I don't know if that helps to kind of define where I really see the difference when it comes to selling. I think salespeople tend to want to be overly excited. They want to um, run too quickly to the solution. And if we can learn to slow down, have a two-way conversation where the buyer is doing most of the talking versus us, we're going to find out that we gather a lot of information and that person's going to paint that ideal fit for themselves and for us. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me as someone who's purchasing. I'll take the other side. Mm-hmm. But when I engage with someone and I've, I have found this, you know, and you're right, there is a different style. There tends to be a different style between men and women. And when I get mm-hmm. this hard sell, it really makes me want to run away. I, I really don't mm-hmm. want to listen to it. It is It makes me feel uncomfortable. It overwhelms me. And my first response is really to run away or to say thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs> and I'll give you another another example, actually, is when people mm-hmm. call you on the phone soliciting monies for maybe organizations that I do want to contribute to. And perhaps I have an idea in mind about how much I want to donate. But when the person on the other end is giving me this hard sell about and convinces mm-hmm. me that I should spend more than I want to, and maybe I do, and I hang up, and I feel terrible, and I don't, want, mm-hmm. and I'm very sorry that I did it or made that kind of a commitment, which doesn't just apply to donations, but in other circumstances or other situations. It could, it could be buying cosmetics, and they can trying to convince you with the cosmetic counter that you need a lipstick or a, you know, a, a some, you know. A, a, powder or whatever it is that you don't really want and then you bring it home and then you don't want to go back there again you, you know don't want to right. have that kind of a, right yeah yeah and the other thing that happens is when you're in a situation where somebody's trying to convince you of something and it's not really your decision a lot of times if you're in the buyer role you can feel pressure on the part of of that conversation. So sometimes, like you're referring to in terms of lipstick, you know, I might just find it's easier as a buyer to just buy it because then I don't have to deal with objections or further selling on the part of that salesperson. So we want to avoid all those things. It should be a two-way conversation where, you know, neither party is worried about whether or not they're going to buy or sell something. If we set things up properly and we, we begin the conversation well, which to me means we have mutual agreement over why we're here, what we're looking to accomplish, make it clear that we're going to ask each other questions and figure out what it is that you want. I'm going to try to figure out if I have something that fits that need. And we give each other permission at the end of that conversation to either say, no, this is not a good fit and walk away from it. Or, yeah, I do think this is a good fit. And we set a clear next step. So removing that kind of pressure from both parties allows us to have a very productive, collaborative conversation without pressure on either party's part. Lorraine, what about the past or even the present, let's say, with 
men, because we're talking about women and the approach they should take. Well, does this, mm-hmm. how does this hard sell? Has it worked in the past? Are, are men, will they, given who they are, are they going to continue to do these kinds of hard sells? I think of a used car salesman, I guess is one example. Yeah. But yeah, so, or is the whole sort of the playing field will change if, if women take the approach that you're discussing, that you're talking about? Well, I, I think a couple of things. You know, the, the traditional way of selling the hard sell approach is one that, you know, Unfortunately, we still see a lot of that out there, both on the part of women being put in that position and men following that approach. Um, and, you know, the reality is if, if, if you try hard enough, you're going to win some business that way. I mean, I learned how to sell that way. I sold that way for many years. It was never very comfortable, but I did have success. So it really is about just because something is working doesn't mean it's the best way to do it. And I think, you know, the world has changed. No one is really interested in being pressured or told what it is they need. So really, whether it's a man or a woman selling, it it really is time to really reflect on what is your selling approach and is it really the most effective approach for you to follow? I think you just touched on one thing I want to – one thing you just said is – the world has changed. I think the world mm-hmm. has definitely changed and really does affect this buyer and seller relationship. Because when you mm-hmm. walk into a place, uh, and it could be any kind of a situation, even when you go into a doctor's office, or, uh, you have a, the buyer has a lot of information. You're not going to, mm-hmm. you know, a lot more information than they ever did. For instance, well, I'll go back maybe to buying a car, really. Women have a lot more information about buying cars. All you have to do is go online before you actually go in person face-to-face to buy the car you want to buy. So they're not going to be able to convince you, like in the old school, when you really didn't have a lot of that kind of, uh, you weren't that well-informed. So that changes everything, yeah. too. I think it changes the playing yeah. field. It absolutely does, you know. I mean, the reality is nobody really wants to be sold. We want, we may want to buy something, but we want it to be on our terms. And to your point, you know, I don't think there's anyone that's going out to buy something of any significance that is not going online first, doing some checking, seeing what's out there, educating themselves. So when you think about that sales person today, in some ways their role has been diminished. They're not needed from the standpoint of product information. What people are needed for today when they're in a sales role is their their ability to understand what it is you're looking for and to be able to address those needs in a way that is, is very professional. And I, I think it all comes down to our ability to really relax, be patient, and have a a, a conversation with somebody that is not under the context that I'm going to sell you something. I mean, selling, to me, that's the end result if you have the right solution. Selling is really, in my opinion, more about uncovering. It's kind of like if you were a private investigator. You don't really know when that person shows up, whether it be for a car or it be for consulting services or marketing or whatever it may be, you don't know who's coming to you yet. You don't know personality style. You don't know any of those things. And you certainly don't know what is driving that decision. So if we can, if we can set aside the whole perspective that I need to sell something and replace it with, my job is to figure out 
what it is that's causing them to come in to begin with and have them share with me through my effective questioning what what they need and what that needs to look like, then I'm going to be in a much better position to be that advisor to them and to have a successful outcome, which ultimately would be the close. And I think the other things, what you're saying is obviously is the obvious, that you need to, you want to deliver the service or the product that the buyer wants, that the person wants. And I think when you follow those steps that you've been talking about, I think one would feel more comfortable to call that person up, ask them more questions, mm-hmm. email them more questions, continue the relationship so that they maybe get more information and, and, mm-hmm. and, and instead of walking away, like you said, and buying lipstick you don't even want just to get out of there, you're never going right. to go back. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so it, it does work. I want to ask you, so you were in, well, you're talking about your own personal experience. You've been in sales for a long time. Uh, but what were you selling and when, and how were you, when you were doing the hard sell? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, my first sales role was with a startup technology company back in the mid-80s. And I joined a, a team of salesmen because that's exactly what it was. So the only thing that I knew was to follow their approach to selling, which was that hard sell. And, um, and I sold that way, I would tell you, for a good 10 years. And it was never comfortable. Um, yeah, it was, it, it, and I, I think I succeeded because I was very stubborn and I was very competitive. And quite frankly, I was not going to let the boys in the room, you know, take home the top sales prize. So I, I learned that while there were a number of hard sell aspects that, that was the only thing I knew, I really began to see where if I, if I just relaxed a little bit and, and worked on not being all about me, Okay, it's not about me. It's really the more I can focus on that other person, my conversations would flow a lot more naturally. Um, and, you know, quite honestly, it was a much more pleasing conversation than when I was going into a sales call that was like, okay, i got to go in there and convince this person or I've got to use this tactic or approach to, you know, uh, overcome an objection uh, you know, I, I began to realize that the more curious I am about that person and at times skeptical when they bring something up as a problem, you know, to kind of just play a little bit of, is that really as big of a problem as you think it is? You know, put on that, put on that advisor hat. And I found the more I was doing that, even without knowing Sandler, I was having a lot more success. And um, so I, I think that, that women, if they knew that they could really sell in a way that really fits them like a glove, I think we would see more women coming into the sales career because it's such a great career for women. I mean, you know, it's one of the few areas that we can earn what we deserve uh, that gives us really the opportunity to, to really nurture and help people with problems that they may have and to have a little more control over our own destiny in our day. Than, than so many other types of roles that are out there. Well, what you're saying is if we can really embrace this sort of new attitude, not sort of, but this new mm-hmm. attitude towards selling, yeah. you will mm-hmm. get more women in the field. And and they probably do shy away, as you say. They shy away because they don't want to be in that high-pressured, high-powered, overwhelming kind of 
sort of atmosphere, I guess, or relationship with somebody else. And we are, yeah. women tend to be, don't you, just by nature, I, is what you're saying, more collab, maybe collaborative, negotiators, mm-hmm. listeners, willing to engage in yeah. conversation and take all of those skills that we sort of innately have and use them to, to sell. What, uh, Lorraine, what about the response? Cause to, the male salesman, when you use this kind of approach and utilize this, I mean, is there any feedback, particularly if you're on a team and maybe there are, you know, certain five men and one woman? Well, you know, part part of um, what I see, because I work with both men and women, and when you have someone on a team who is using this collaborative, no-pressure approach, uh you know, in the beginning, you're going to get kind of pushback from the rest of the folks of, you know, that doesn't work, or you really need to go in. You need, you need to you need to set that time. You need to go in and sell them on what it is, and and why are you asking all those questions? And I think the biggest challenge a woman has in the environment is believing in themselves and taking the risk to do things differently, because there's a tremendous amount of pressure for them to follow the way that other people feel they need to sell. So it's it's planting their feet and not necessarily worrying about how all of these other folks are feeling because what was going to happen very quickly is the, uh, the men in the room are going to see that the woman who is using this approach is having much more success than they are. They're closing more business, they're closing it faster, and the kind of relationship that they've established with that buyer is going to be much more solid than that sort of superficial, I need to get business on the book sort of an approach. Well, now, if this is the Sandler approach. I just want to keep mm-hmm. mentioning that. It's called yes. the Sandler mm-hmm. Selling System, right? Yeah. How, and this is relatively new, this approach, or how long? And, and I guess the question is, how long have they done research and studies in terms of specifically how well does it work or how much better it is than the hard sell? I keep calling it the hard sell. I don't know if there's another word for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's the, the traditional way in which people sell is, has been around for a long time. And, you know, it's still a, it's still very, very much the, the way in which a large number of people sell. Sandler uh, has been in the business of developing uh, selling, selling professionals and sales managers for, gosh, I think it's probably 40 years now. And as with anything, um, you know, we learn uh, from ourselves and we're learning from our customers. And so our, our, our approach is is one in which we're always looking at it and saying what are the core components that we need to have in place for a successful conversation and then we we're continuously making changes at, in order to really keep up with the times and some of that is just how we say things or it could be you know with the different complexities of different types of products um you know, there may be additional tools that we need to be incorporating uh, for us to, you know, sell a more advanced or, or complex kind of an environment. So, so it's constantly um, evolving, and you're constantly analyzing yeah. your approach and how yeah. well it's working, which is a good thing, obviously. Right. We have a yeah. couple minutes left, so I want to mm-hmm. 
I know that I have a website here that that uh, listeners can go to www.sandler.com. Uh, but mm-hmm. your book, specifically The Unapologetic Saleswoman, uh, Breaking the Barriers, mm-hmm. Beating the Odds, is there a website for that as well that we... There are two ways that someone can uh, purchase the book, and one is through the Sandler.com website, and the other is through Amazon. So if they go to the Amazon website and uh, search for The Unapologetic Saleswoman or Lorraine Ferguson, they will find the book there as well. Is this your first book? This is my first book. I have written a number of articles and um, contributed to a number of things within the Sailor Network, but this is my first official book. I guess my last question is, your first official book, how are the sales going? <laughs> well, you know, I, I can tell you it's it's been pretty exciting. Um, I, I get a lot of feedback through um, LinkedIn in particular from people in the business community uh, to the book. I recently was at a, a conference down in Baltimore, and um, the book created quite a buzz with the folks in the audience, and it was a combination of men and women. And what I found really, really um, encouraging is how many men came up to me after that talk about the women on their sales team or attracting more women to sales and what can they do to, you know, create an environment in which they can they can have more of a diversity of their sales team. So That's I think great. it really kind of hit home, and um, I, I think the feedback has been great, and um, we are definitely selling some books, so Terrific. I'm very encouraged. Thank, well, thanks so much for sharing all the information you did today. And uh, the unapologetic saleswoman, uh, I wish you the best. Great book, good information, and it is, as you say, it's for women and men. Yes. Thank you so much, Catherine. I really appreciate the opportunity, and um, let's all sell well. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific.
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Thomas J. Sims, MD. He's author of On Call in the Arctic, A Doctor's Pursuit of Life, Love, and Miracles in the Alaskan Frontier. Uh, Dr. Sims is a writer and actor who studied zoology and creative writing at UCLA before attending medical school at Creighton University. After leaving Alaska, he began a private practice and began to write and act, and he now runs a medical consultation practice and the website DocTalkToday.com. He lives in Bend, Oregon. Um, he's written an extraordinary memoir recounting the adventures of a young doctor stationed in the Alaskan bush. Cross the fish out of water stories of northern exposure with the rough and rugged setting of the Discovery Channel's Alaskan bush people and Thomas J. Sims on call in the Arctic, where he relates his incredible experience saving lives in one of the most remote outposts in North America. Imagine a young doctor trained in the latest medical knowledge and state-of-the-art equipment suddenly transported back to one of the world's most isolated and unforgiving environments, Nome, Alaska. Dr. Sims plans to become a pediatric surgeon, drastically, his plans to become a pediatric surgeon, drastically changed when on the eve of being drafted into the Army to serve as a mass surgeon in Vietnam, he was offered a commission in the U.S. Public Health for assignment in Anchorage, Alaska. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Dr. Sims. Thank you very much. I feel like I'm back in Alaska here, up in the mountains in Oregon. It's a cold 24 degrees this morning. So, Well, you didn't get that far away from Alaska. I was actually in Alaska probably about, well, a little, actually around the same time that you were there. But I was in Anchorage, which was a different kind of an experience, and also I was a tourist. Uh, not doing what you were doing in Nome, Alaska, which is way up in the woods, I guess, on the eastern coast of the state. So... What a story. I mean, you, I mean, this is like, these are amazing stories, obviously, that have had an impact on your life, uh, as, on your family, on your practice, all of it. So what, uh, made you decide to sort of share these stories with us? 
um, cause they have an impact when I, you know, when you read these stories, they also have an impact on the reader. So, um, Start with that. Uh, at what well, point yeah, you say, uh, and, yeah. and they do. I, I knew, I mean, literally, Catherine, I knew the moment that I stepped off the plane in Nome, uh, and we saw we, we had no place to live. Uh, I had a, a wife who was pregnant, who was term pregnant, ready to have a baby, a two-year-old daughter. We had no place to live, no money, no food. We had nothing. And I saw the living situations there where people lived in homes that were literally made of, you know, driftwood and, and, and uh, tin. And I thought, this is going to be a life-changing thing for us. Uh, I, I wrote my first book when I was 10, so I, I have this, this love of writing. And I, and I knew, uh, I think at that very moment, someday I was going to have to write these experiences down, never knowing what I was looking, you know, to have happen. But I started a journal literally that day, and then fortunately we didn't ha- we didn't have telephones. Uh, we had very sparse mail service, so the way we communicated with our family is we recorded little cassette tapes, and we would send those out down to the lower forty eights. Our family lived in California. They would listen to what we did, and then they would record tapes back to us. Well, thankfully, they did not record over the tapes that we made. And when um, uh, my dear mother-in-law passed away just about four years ago, I guess it was now, we found those tapes. And I thought, wow, between my journal and those tapes, I could reconstruct this experience. Well, you've talked. And I realized that you know I had to learn to adapt to everything. I mean, my wife had to learn to adapt to to uh, having a baby. Literally, when there were no diapers, there was no baby food. I had to deliver my own son. We knew that we had to adapt, and I thought, you know, we can share the experiences that we had. And we can sort of uh, tell people, you know, how we adapted, that that was something everyone could adapt to, to their lives, whether it was, you know, in the Arctic or whether it was in Portland or Miami or wherever it was. We all have extreme circumstances in our life, and I thought I could tell our experiences and help people learn principles in their lives that they could use to adapt to those principles in their own lives. That yeah, was and I think, I think you've writing. done that, and I think one of the things when you're put in that kind, when you are in those kinds of circumstances, I also lived in Latin America, America during that time and, and experienced some of obviously the same things you did. You know that, that ex- first of all isolation because you are isolated. There's no yeah. as you as you described it. There's no you can't communicate. You'd have a problem. You can't call somebody and uh, ask them what to do about it because there's no telephone. So that whole issue of having to sort of survive on of having to survive on your own. And of course you're in the, the it's freezing. It's cold. It's dark. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, things that you have to overcome. And don't you think that once you've done that, then coming back to the United States, Oregon, it's it's kind of simple. It's like, oh, my gosh, you know, the things that we have to deal with. And not, I'm not saying that we don't have horrific problems to deal with, but you really look, see things through a very different um, filter once you you've experienced. Yeah, certainly hit that nail on the head. When I started my private practice, it was in a very small town here in Oregon, uh, a very tiny little hospital and about 20 miles away from Salem, which was, you know, a, a major hospital in a major population area. Anytime I ran into any problem that I wasn't comfortable with, picking up the phone and making a phone call and actually reaching somebody <laughs> or having an ambulance to put, you know, a bad patient into transport, I felt like I was was on vacation. I mean, I, I really did. Uh, it, it, it's all the difference in the world. And of course, 
having the experiences that I have, I think that gave me the confidence that I needed uh, at that point in my life that I was going to make it kind of no matter, you know, what situation I was placed into. Yeah. All right. So talked about some, obviously, some of the very specific experiences that you did have uh, that that uh, were unique to where you were living, obviously, and unique at that particular time. This was in the 70s. So um, what were the, the human interest stories? Well, one of my favorite scenes in the book, because it's my favorite thing in life practically, was when my wife went into labor. Um, we were staying in a, in a place that finally the public health service found a temporary location for us to live in. And um, my wife went into labor, and you sort of think about, you know, the, the funny things you always hear about, that someone goes into labor, you pick up the phone, and you call the doctor, and you go to the hospital, and you have the baby. And I figured, oh, my God, there's no one to call. You know, it's me. And it was like, you know, I, I was like almost overwhelmed with what could happen if something terrible would happen. And it's just, it's just one of my favorite stories. One of my last services that I had during my internship uh, was obstetrics. And um, everybody in the obstetrics department knew that we were going to be going up to Alaska. And uh, we had a period of time when we had no um, health insurance. So they actually gave me, as a gift, a portable delivery kit. That if we had the baby on the plane or we had the baby in an igloo someplace, we could do this delivery. Well, one of the things... Well, I'm going to stop you because I want to know, what is a portable delivery kit? <laughs> I just want to know what that is. There, there, there were... <laughs> Sterile gloves. There was oxytocin, a shot that you give to contract the uterus. Uh, there were wipes to wipe down the baby. There was even a little ink pad that we could take up the baby's footprints. I mean, and some suture material if I needed suture material. A clip for the baby's umbilical cord. I mean, it was all wrapped up in here. And then they, and it was stuff that I didn't ask where they got the supplies because I knew where they got the supplies and I didn't want to know. But they also had one little bottle, a little brown medicine bottle with one little tablet in it and there was a label on that bottle and it said Valium 5 milligrams and it said just in case Was that for you so or my, for the your or for the <laughs> Was the Valium for you or for the Well, you were it didn't say yeah. So what happened when my wife finally started labor and I checked her and I thought we have this clinic thing and we better go over to that clinic. She's in labor. And I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And then I remembered that Valium. So I, I opened up that kit and I pulled out that Valium and I described this in great detail in my book. And I took the Valium and then I thought, oh, my gosh, I've never taken a tranquilizer in my whole life. What if it puts me to sleep? What if I don't know what I'm doing? So, Catherine, what I made I did is I, I put my finger down my throat and I brought up that Valium. I bit it in two. I swallowed half. I went to my wife and I said, here, take this. And she did. And we went over and we had the baby. I mean, it was as simple as that. That's such a great story. Yeah. And I tell you, it was crazy. Uh, I then had, you know, I lost a very dear friend when I was there, uh, someone that I worked very close with. Uh, there's, of course, scenes about that. Probably one of the most dramatic things that, that I had was I had a, um, a woman. Um, she was actually uh, not an Eskimo woman. She was a Caucasian woman, um, friend, uh, a wife of my best friend who was a teacher. And she came in in labor with her first child. I did not manage her OB time, her pregnancy. She was managed by a public health nurse. 
the nurse was on vacation, and she came uh, in one night, and she was in labor, and she hollered out, because I'd never seen her for her pregnancy. She hollered out, the baby's coming, the baby's coming. So I looked down and getting ready to deliver the baby, and a hand fell out of her birth canal area. This little blue cyanotic hand. And, of course, that's undeliverable. That's a shoulder presentation. And this was a setup to lose a baby and probably lose a mother. And we had a communication. It was kind of a telephone. It was a thing that that used, it kind of went through these great big things around the state of Alaska called the White Alice system. It was like satellites, but it, it wasn't to a satellite. It was these big dishes that went across the land. And I had my nurse try to get an obstetrician on the phone in Anchorage. And um, she tried and tried, and finally she made a connection. It was about 2 in the morning in Anchorage. And I got this doctor on the line, and I said, I have a shoulder presentation. Uh, A woman, you know, what am I going to do? And um, he thought for a minute, and he said, pray. And he hung up on me. And I thought, someday I'm going to kill that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> I was left with this situation, and it was just a horrible situation. Didn't know what I was going to do. What did you do? Are you, are you not going to tell us? It's in the book. Well, I was supposed to say you got to read the book. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I will be happy to tell you. You want me to tell you what I did? Uh, yes. I scrubbed. I, we didn't have any. They're called gauntlet gloves. We didn't have any gloves that were long enough. I scrubbed my hand, my shoulders, my chest with betadine, and with a bare hand, because I couldn't take a chance on a short glove slipping off, I took that little baby's hand in in my hand, and I just closed my eyes, and I prayed, as the doctor suggested, (laughs) and I just closed my eyes, and I just reached up inside the birth canal area. I was able to get my hand through the dilated cervix up into the uterus, and I retracted that hand, and then just by the grace of God, there's, there's no other way to say it, I was able to grab a foot and then a second foot and I delivered that little baby and I got that baby out and when that baby took that breath, I just could hardly believe it. I think I broke down in tears, by the way. But then the greatest thing, it might be the reason I was born, about 17, 18 years later in my home in Oregon, we were having some painting done and a gentleman was painting the house and doing some stuff, and he noticed some Alaska uh, memorabilia around, and he saw our name, and he, he said to me on a Saturday, he said, you know, I see your name is Sims. By any chance, were you a doctor up in Nome, Alaska? And I said, well, I was. And he said, do you remember delivering a little baby that came out hand first? And I said, matter of fact, you know, you don't forget that. How could you forget Why that? Why do you ask? And this man said... That's my granddaughter, and she just graduated valedictorian from her high school class. And I thought, wow. <laughs> you know, that's, that was really something, and that's, that's probably one of the most moving experiences I've had in my life. So, well, that could be uh, end of story. That could be end of story. That really, that's a, that's a, a I mean, it's so moving, obviously. And Thank you. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it really was. Yeah. So what does that say for, because I want to, you know, we don't have a lot of time, and I mean, you've had all of these kinds of experience, maybe that was the crowning one to be, but, you know, like what, in terms of, I mean, you had to adapt, you had to survive, you know, you know all of the medical uh, training and skills and techniques really didn't apply in that kind of a situation. So now, 
taking that story, and we want people to go out and read your book, but let's maybe bring it up to the present. What kind of, yeah. how did that impact you as a doctor? Because you've been practicing for many, many years, uh, as a doctor here, uh, with, ha- you know, you have all the bells and whistles. You have all the stuff. And today, I think in, in medicine, especially with some of the young guys and gals who practice medicine, uh, it's, it is all about the machines and the technology and very little about the, what you've been talking about or your experiences in Nome, Alaska. I learned that I came from a rough upbringing, uh, many people did, and I learned I had to adapt to my childhood, and uh, it, it was substance abuse in my family, and just thank God I didn't go that way. But I learned when I was up in Alaska that my training and my experience, just I had just finished internship, no more training than that, they were really going to just let me down, you know, that they weren't going to tell me what to do that I had to learn to adapt to just kind of lose, using those as a, as a background for my instincts. And, and I learned, at the same as I did when I was a child, that if I could learn to just improvise and be flexible and persevere, just those three principles, I, I could let my instincts, you know, tell me what to do kind of no matter what. And that's the theme of my book, that I wanted the memoir to not just be an adventure story of what happened to me, I wanted to pass those three principles on to readers that then they could use in their lives um, because we all come to extreme circumstances in our lives. And if you can just learn those three principles, you anyone can adapt to life. Um, I'm very happy. I, I was just given a um, blogging gig uh, for Psychology Today, for example, and I'm going to be blogging for about a year with them, and I'm going to be blogging under a title, Under Extreme Circumstances, and what I'll do is I'll relate how I was able to, to have these experiences that I had up in the Arctic and ad- adapt and how it let my instincts, you know, guide me based upon my training. And uh, You I know, I think that's my- so important because I think today there's just, in my experience and even with my own kids and their ac- education and um, there's so much hand-holding and there's so much sort uh, of, get, you know, getting away from go with your gut or go with your, yeah. you know, intuition. And, uh, and and I don't think that's a good thing. And no, it, as you say, they, you know, looking at the computers and looking at the x-rays and looking at this, you know, you know, I'm hoping that people will listen to one another and they'll talk to one another. And in my profession, I mean, that's all I had. And I, and I think as I was able then to enter my, my real practice and my real life, I, I learned that I'm going to get more information by listening to my patients and the kind of problems, you know, that they had and try to read between the lines a little bit and do my clinical exam. And I was a doctor that used very little x-ray and very little lab work because I tried to, you know, focus my attention and, and my work on what they needed rather than like technology, just tell me what to do. And I carried that all the way through my practice life. And I think much of that was because I had to do that up in Alaska. I had no choice, but I was able to hone those skills because that's all that I really had at that time. Yeah. Well, now you're going to be able to share that with uh, on the blog, which I think is great. I always remember my son's or one of my son's pediatricians saying, you know, the look test. Just look at yeah. look at the baby. Look at the yeah. look at just look at the kid. Does he look well? Does he? You know, I mean, just take a moment to look at him. And and you know, and I always remembered that because as a parent, I did that. But as a pediatrician, he always did that. Yeah. You had a great pediatrician. Let me tell you straight off the bat. 
where I trained at Creighton University, um, which is a Catholic Jesuit university in Omaha, Nebraska. My opinion, the best medical school in the country. Very, very clinical school. And I had a pediatric um, professor, and that was one of the first lessons that he said. He said, the first thing you do is you look at a kid and you just say, is it a sick kid or a well kid? That's the first thing, really sick or not really sick, you know what I mean? And then focus yourself after that. That's the same advice that you got, and that's great advice. Yeah. And then you can look at the specifics, and then there may be. Sure. Yeah. Then, you, then you hone in on, you've got a sore throat or earache or what you have, but first you look, how sick is this kid, and make that determine, and kind of let that guide you where you go. And that's instinct, and that's based upon your training and based upon your experience. And that's what I got up on the Arctic, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. And, and the book, the book doesn't tell people how to use these things. The introduction of the book I talk about these three principles that you're going to see during during the book. I had to, for example, and, and if I could just tell you just one more little example that we have. There was a, a paranoid schizophrenic gentleman um, in town, and he was sitting uh, atop a hill in a, the village of White Mountain. He was Caucasian. He was a paranoid schizophrenic, and he was shooting at people when they were going down the river. And the uh, Alaska State Trooper came into Nome and told me, uh, they grabbed me out of clinic and said, we have to fly you to White Mountain. You have to get this guy off the mountain. And I said, well, how do you expect me to get him off the mountain? <laughs> and they said, well, that's, that's your decision. You're the doctor. If you can't get him off, we're going to have to shoot him. So I had to figure out a way ahead. What was I going to do to go up in the on the tundra of White Mountain, Alaska, and try this guy with a rifle pointing the rifle at me? How am I going to convince him everything is okay to come down on the mountain? Because if they don't, they were going to shoot him. And I was terrified with that, but I had to just stop and improvise and be flexible and use those same principles until I could figure out how to get him down. And, and I ultimately did. Of course, I explained it in the book. And that's the way the whole book is sort of written. It's I'm presented with these horrible, unusual circumstances. How did we deal with it? How do we use these three principles of life to adapt to that situation? Yeah. And it's and shown by case, example. By, yeah, and I guess in this case, obviously, you were the doctor, which meant you were an expert in in every single specialty. You were a psychiatrist, a pediatrician, <laughs> uh, an obstetrician, you know. The trouble is, I was in my, my mid-twenties, and I had no training in any of those things, except, you know, my, my OB experience, three months. That's all I had. Psychiat- psychi- uh, psychiatry, probably six weeks. And it, it was flying by the seat of my pants. Yeah, well, but you were the attending in all these areas. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes, I was. Yeah. You know all the right words. I, I would have died to have had an attending up there. Let me tell you, it would have been wonderful. Yeah. Oh. And so maybe just one last question, because this has to do with family. Uh, it has to, this experience obviously must have had a different impact on your wife, because she wasn't the doctor. She had one, at least one of your babies there. Uh, so what was it, just sort of tying this all together, what was it like for her? And what was it like for you? You know, there must have been strains, I'm assuming, on your relationship. But that's, because it, it's, it, it, you know, I'll stop there. Well, First of all, I'm blessed because I got the right woman right out of the chute, <laughs> and uh, we've been married um, about 51 years now, I think. And my name is Pat, and um, many people, they say, boy, I did a lot of work, but Pat 
was the real saint in all of this, that she was just right there, you know, that this was a life experience with her. Um, there was no way that she was not going to join me. There was no way she was going to go to Anchorage and have the baby. And she actually, I credit her for turning uh, the whole corner on the experience that we had in Nome. We did have a lot of social issues and a lot of pressure because I represented um, government medicine. I was part of the public health service. And the local hospital there was unable to get or keep a private physician. So the Eskimo people were all um, blessed. They got um, health care. They were entitled to that. The Caucasian people, I was their doctor. I had to do things because I was the only doctor in town. But they resented that. And we had a, we came into kind of some hard times when we first got there, being part of the community. And it was my wife's decision to have the baby in Nome. She said, you know, if these people here, if they don't think you're good enough to take care of me having this baby, they're not going to think you're good enough to take care of them. So she made the decision to stay in Nome and have us have the baby there. And after we did that, everything changed. We became part of the community. I think people really appreciated what we did, and uh, it made life livable. So I really credit her with, with socially making us acceptable in the area. So you were a good team, and she was a very wise woman in her 20s, yeah. I assume. You were in your 20s. Yes, she was. As was yes. she? Yeah. So um, it would have been a very different experience without her. I, I, I oh, I, I couldn't, a, have, couldn't have done it. I literally could, couldn't have done it, to know. Yeah. Well, we have about three, literally three minutes left. So I want to make, first of all, your blog. I want to mention that because we can be reading your blog. Um, Thank and, you. Yeah, the title of the book, On Call in the Arctic, A Doctor's Pursuit of Life, Love, and Miracles in the Alaskan Frontier. Great book, Dr. Thomas Sims. Um, and we can go to this website, oncallinthearctic.com, I guess for information about the book. So, but... Now, where can we go for information, the blog and uh, any other, you know, uh, anything else that you're doing that would, you know, relate to this, to the book and the, and the topic? The blog will be right on psychologytoday.com, and I'll have my first blog uh, probably in about a week now, and I'll be blogging about once a month for them. Uh, on my website, on callonthearctic.com, um, if persons would like to, to have a personalized sign book. Uh, they can actually order it through the website. The book is available on Amazon, every place online, available in bookstores everywhere. It's produced, it's um, published by Pegasus Books in New York. And on my website, uh, there is a place where I talk about events. I am trying to put together a speaking engagement calendar. I would really love to speak with audiences uh, about my experience and relate, you know, the theme of my book. And anytime I have a speaking engagement or something people would be interested in, that will be posted on the website on Call on the Arctic. Okay, so we will be following you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. There's also a web page, you know, uh, not, uh, what is it, uh, Facebook, a Facebook author page. The Facebook author page is under my name, Thomas J. Sims, author. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Dr. Thomas Sims. Thank you. Appreciate it a lot. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 